Hi, and thanks for hitting the snooze button. I'm Neil Headley. I was prepared to write off a literal lifelong battle with insomnia to just being part of doing more than 30 years of morning television and radio. Well, I dug a little deeper and I found out there was a ton more to learn. So in this series, we try to help people fix their sleep by figuring out why mine is so horribly broken and maybe we can stumble upon some answers together. I get twitchy every time I see something that claims to be a magic bullet that's going to fix people's sleep. So, if I'm being honest, when I came across a book called The One Week Insomnia Cure, I had to investigate. Didn't hurt that my friend Dr. Michael Grandner had turned me on to some pretty significant research that had been done by the author of that book, Dr. Jason Ellis. So, let's just dive in. Jay Ellis is here. Well, everybody that's on the show gets the very same first question, and it doesn't matter whether you are a head of state, a neuroscientist, a lead guitarist of a rock band, everyone gets the same first question. How did you sleep last night? Horribly. Oh, oh. Well, first of all, I'm sorry. Uh, Second of all, (laughs) what does that mean exactly? Um, I'd had a particularly long day in the sense that I was examining a PhD, um, which took four and a half hours. Uh, Then I had a lab meeting, and then I was giving a talk in the evening. And, uh, yeah, I usually just fall asleep straight away, but I was having lots of thoughts about lots of projects and ideas and things. So it took me quite a while to get off to sleep last night. And, and, okay, I I probably know the answer to this already because I am, after all, speaking to the author of The One Week Insomnia Cure. (laughs) However... When you do have a night where sleep doesn't show up for you, what's your go-to? What do you do about it? My go-to is always stimulus control. Um, so by that, I my particular rules on that is whenever I get to the point that I know that it, it's not happening, you know, just before you get frustrated and angry and all resentful in bed, there's a moment where you think, yeah, this isn't happening. And that's the point I get out of bed I will go and watch uh, an episode of a program that I, I like, usually a repeat of something I've already seen. Once it's finished, I'll go back to bed and try again. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I, the answers to those questions are always different. Uh, but <laughs> but typically for a lot of people, it does. It ends up get it, it involves getting out of bed yeah. and taking another shot at it later. Almost like the getting out of bed step is some sort of reset button, I guess. It is. It does two things. One, it prevents you from getting angry, frustrated and worried in bed. And over the time that this could happen, you could start to associate the bedroom with a a negative space. So I don't really want that. I love my bed. Um, And the other thing that it does is it, it strengthens the drive to sleep. So when I do go back to bed, the likelihood of me sleeping is actually increased quite exponentially. I have to tell you um, that as we come up on the second anniversary of your book being released and the first anniversary of my podcast coming out, uh, it was quite accidental when I realized that I've been, and forgive me for putting it this way, I've been stealing your cover art for a year now because the the cover, if you haven't seen it before, of the one-week insomnia cure is the words written across a pillow. 
Um, and if you go to the Instagram account for the Snooze Button podcast, which is uh, the, the username on Instagram is Get Your Snooze On, you'll see that for a year now, I've been putting up episode information with what's supposed to look like embroidery into a pillowcase because my wife thought that would be a clever idea. And then I showed her the cover of your book uh, a, a while back and she went, oh, oh, that's unfortunate. <laughs> well, actually, so, I'm rather honored. Oh, well, I, I, I could go with the great minds think alike, but I, I wouldn't <laughs> diminish you down to my level. So, No, I love that. Let's talk about the, the insomnia cure and let's talk about the work that you're doing with acute insomnia. Michael brought up, um, in, in particular, Michael Grandner brought up the work that you've been doing with acute insomnia, which begs the question for the casual listener who is not a sleep scientist, where is the dividing line between acute insomnia and chronic insomnia? See, now there's the curveball question because we don't actually have an answer to that question right now. Um, over the years, different uh, ways of diagnosing insomnia have used different duration criteria. So in some iterations, it's been one month. So you've got to have all the symptoms for a month. In other iterations, it's got to be for six months. They've all now focused and they're all in alignment, but it's set at three months. How or why and who chose three months is quite a mystery. <laughs> and, so, and so we don't actually know when insomnia becomes insomnia. And so the way that I've always framed it is anything less than three months, um, between two weeks and three months is the period that I tend to study. And maybe the three-month thing is, 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 was created by the same people who decided it was 10,000 steps for our Fitbits. <laughs> I have a feeling that, that there is an underground organization plucking numbers. Right. You know, the same people that said eight, eight-ounce glasses of water and 10,000 steps on your Fitbit. They just randomly pulled a number out and everyone went, oh, okay, I, yeah. I can work with that. Um, so now – the, the research that you've been doing, and I'm, I'm referring back specifically here to a paper from, I want to say 2015, uh, that talks about being able to knock out insomnia in, uh, I think the number was 73% of, of the people that were involved in a study that you did five years ago after a simple one-hour session of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Talk to me about that study. Mm. Well, it's, it's actually built upon a whole program of research. Believe it or not, acute insomnia as a topic hasn't been touched in terms of research up until 2012. And so on the basis of that, uh, the first thing we had to do is I create a diagnosis for acute insomnia and then determine what sort of factors are predicting who's going to get acute insomnia, who's not. And then, of course, who's going to translate onto getting chronic insomnia? On the basis of all of that research, it does appear that the transition from acute to chronic insomnia is much more about dysfunctional beliefs, lots of um, thoughts that tend to invade your mind at night, uh, as well as the cardinal sins that we talk about you extend your time in bed, you nap during the day, you'll have a lie-in. And so it would appear that CBTI would be a good candidate to try to stop this transition from acute to chronic insomnia. Beautiful. Now, on the basis of that, I wanted to create an intervention that would do that. 
but I didn't want a full CBTI because that's usually six to eight weeks. Um, and you get a lot of people dropping out because they don't want to do six or eight weeks of therapy. So I looked at the literature that existed already on brief treatments, and it appears that you can get clinical gains in chronic insomnia, even with just an hour of contact. And so that's where I got the hour of contact time from. And then uh, I also wanted a pamphlet because I wanted somebody to have something they could take away that they could reread whenever they wanted to. And so that's how we sort of devised the intervention itself. And then, of course, you've got to go out and test it. And, and so the study itself from 2015 mm. was 40 people. It was. So and, and so when you're talking about testing it, um, and I guess, and, and I keep hearing this as a recurring theme, <laughs> testing things like this on a broader scale in a lab is prohibitively expensive. And so how do you go about then testing it with a, a larger group? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. Uh, in essence, if you want to test it on a larger group, you really do need more finances to do that. And so applying for funding to get funding in order to do a much larger trial is the way to go. Um, the initial sample of 40 was split into two groups, 20 people who didn't get the intervention, but we just followed them up and see what happens to their sleep, and 20 people who got the intervention, we followed them up. Um, <clears throat> with samples that small, it's always a bit challenging to make some definitive conclusions. Um, that being said, what we did do was a power calculation just to make sure that having a sample of 20 was sufficient to make those conclusions about how effective it was and, and how many people actually didn't go on to develop chronic insomnia. But yes, yeah, certainly it always comes down to funding. And before, uh, as I've heard so many people start referring to it lately, before the stupid virus, <laughs> um, right? Uh, before the stupid virus, we, I was starting to hear rumblings of people talking about sleep and sleep problems as the next global health crisis. Mm. And so, I mean, not that necessarily the stupid virus has not knocked sleep off the front page, but when we get back to whatever normal looks like going forward, is that what it's going to take? Is it going to uh, is, is it going to be establishing the importance of sleep and all the various ways that sleep impacts people to be able to get it on the front page in terms of funding? Because I can only imagine that, for example, last last fall, I think it was, there were so many professional athletes, whether they were in the NBA, the NFL, the National Hockey League, whatever it was, that all seemed to get on the same page at the same time and were all giving interviews over over the course of a three or four week span about how important sleep was to their athletic performance. And so it felt like right around then there was this explosion of attention and people taking sleep seriously all of a sudden, but then that went away again. Do you think our attention will turn back to that once we're done with COVID and then maybe we can start looking at getting the funding that's needed, getting, you know, polysomnography covered by more people's insurance programs, particularly in the United States, where for a lot of people it's not, uh, things like that. Does that resonate? I think that uh, the, the stupid virus um, <laughs> is actually going to create a lot of opportunities for sleep and sleep funding in the future. 
Um, if we look at the data that's already coming out from Italy and from China, what we've done, and I, I did this the other day, was looking at how much acute insomnia we will be expecting in the future. And generally in the general population at any given time point, the prevalence, so a, a snapshot of how many people might have acute insomnia, it works out to about 8% of the population. When I've extrapolated the data from Italy and from China, it looks like it's going to be about 45%. Wow. So we're going to see a huge uptake in acute insomnia. And I think that that's going to drive more funding in the future. Wow. Uh, I, I, love, mm. I love getting answers from people that, that then spark 17 questions in my head for what the next question should be. <laughs> but then, you've, and you've heard me do it two or three times now. You give me an answer and I go, wow, oh. there are 11 things I want to ask you as a follow-up. Which one am I going to go with? Um, I mean, for, for the work that you've been doing on acute insomnia, Mm. I look at someone like me who I stumbled upon a night of seven hours, at least this is according to my Fitbit, um, <laughs> seven hours and 25 minutes of sleep, uh, an hour and 35 of which, according to my Fitbit, was deep sleep. And that's the first time I've gotten seven and a half hours of sleep in it's got to be at least seven or eight months. And I felt like throwing myself a little parade and doing a happy dance around the house because for me, sleep problems, not specifically diagnosed as insomnia, but, you know, issues with sleep and functioning on four to five hours of sleep a night. That's been my norm for at least the last 30 years that I'm aware of. Right. And... Uh, probably even further back than that. So we talk about this one-hour session of CBTI and the mm. pamphlet and the 73% who got amazing results, which, by the way, I, I love the part that refers to how when the not when the control group found out about the results in <laughs> the other group, they were like, hey, how do I get that treatment? Um, yeah. Does – I mean, obviously one hour of CBTI is not go – it's going to take more than that to fix my sleep. But is CBTI a thing that should be on my radar as I'm working through my list of what I'm going to try? I do think it is. Um, and – you know, it, it sounds like that you have recurrent bouts of sleep problems. And this particular one-hour session might actually give you enough of the push to actually reset your sleep back into its default mode. Even though my alarm goes off at 3 o'clock in the morning? As long as we time all of the components around your schedules, yeah, we can do it. Wow. Okay. Um, see this, I, so for me to, and, and part of this is because as they say, all research is me search. Um, <laughs> part of why I embarked on this journey in the first place was in, in an attempt to try and learn more about my sleep. Um, about a year ago now, I went for uh, a sleep test at Sunnybrook hospital in Toronto here. And we discovered among other things that, uh, I have a periodic limb movement index of 82. <laughs> wow. Okay, you win. Um, yeah. yeah. Guy Leschziner, uh heard that number and he said, that's quite sporting. <laughs> <laughs> that's one way to put it. Um, yeah. I, I have to say, you beat me. Mine is 25. 
Wow. Okay, see, but here was the thing, is they immediately put me, uh, Mark Bulos and his team at Sunnybrook put me on Mirapex, mm-hmm. which uh, for those who are listening who don't know about Mirapex, it's primarily for Parkinson's, mm-hmm. uh, but also works with people with periodic limb movement disorder and restless leg syndrome as well. Um, and and it knocked my 82, get this, down to a one. Brilliant. A yeah. nice response. Yeah. Now, there uh, there are myriad other things that are wrong with my sleep. And then, of course, the conversation happens. And this was sort of echoed by uh, Richard Ellis from Johns Hopkins that when the Mirapex stops, the restless leg and the periodic limb movement disorder come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I need to figure out whether it's increasing my iron intake or whatever it is that I'm going to do so that I don't have to be on Mirapex every day for the rest of my life. Okay. Um, but can can CBTI also help address periodic limb movement or restless leg? Beautiful question. There is actually one study which demonstrates that CBTI does decrease the symptom profile of uh, RLS-PLMD. Now, what that study showed was it's not as if it stops somebody from having those periodic limb movements, but what it does do is it keeps them asleep during that time. And so CBTI, one of the things it does is it deepens sleep. And if you deepen sleep enough, even somebody who's in chronic pain will wake up a lot less. And that's why we see CBTI works quite nicely in lots of pain conditions. And this one study did demonstrate that although people would have those arousals, they wouldn't be woken up by them. So CBTI is an option. The other thing I would say is it's not necessarily iron per se that is related to RLS PLMD. It's always worth getting a ferritin check Now, ferritin is the capacity for iron to bind to proteins, and that's what's really more related to somebody's RLS-PLMD in most cases. Oh, Mm. okay. okay, Now that's a light bulb has gone on because um, that was one of the first questions that Richard Ellis asked me about my RLS-PLMD was, have you had your iron checked? Um, And and so that sparked a whole conversation as well. I, I guess... One of the burning questions for me is, and, and you know, part of this journey for me is trying to identify whether there's a magic bullet. And, and I know there's not one thing that works for everyone, but it certainly seems like CBTI might come close for a bunch of people. So if that's the case, how come everyone isn't running around talking about um, their their experiences with it. What is it that you think is keeping people from pursuing this right out of the gate as a course of treatment that leads us down this road where people are hooked on Ambien and people are doing all these other various things and buying weighted blankets and blah, 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 <laughs> when there could be one answer that just the only thing that's stopping them is they haven't tried it yet. Yeah. I think that's a specific trajectory of having insomnia. And the trajectory tends to go, at least from my understanding of it, for the first couple of weeks, people tend to ignore it. They, they think that whatever has caused it, whether that be a change in circumstances or stress or whatever it is, they think that that will go away when the stress goes away. And for a lot of us, it will. The next thing, if you carry on with your insomnia, is you, you hit the supermarket and you hit it hard. 
So you tend to go to the section on sleep and you'll start at the top with the, the lovely pills, you know, non-pharmacological pills that will help you sleep and the candles and the lavender pillows and the sprays. And people go through this wonderful, almost uh, eclectic viewpoint on how to manage sleep. After that, this is when it starts to get a bit tricky. A lot of people then start to go towards things like cough medicine and alcohol. And one of the problems with alcohol is it is actually a really good sedative. Uh, I don't know if you've ever tried it, but um, (laughs) if you have, you know that the more of it you drink, the more sleepy you will get. Uh, And so it's very reinforcing. The challenge with alcohol, of course, is then it wakes you up in the middle of the night and you're dehydrated and it fragments the sleep. So you're not going to feel great for that part of the night. And then there's a tendency to, oh, I'll have another bout of alcohol tonight to help me get off to sleep again. After that, that's when people do tend to go and see a a physician of some sort. Now, the issue here is what are physicians in terms of their knowledge about sleep, we know it's actually quite poor. And we also know that they don't really know about cognitive behavioral therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. So that's one of the barriers is that there's a disconnect between the researchers and the clinicians and the actual people in the primary front line who could prescribe these things. Well, and not to throw uh, our family doctors under the bus, mm. but I mean, I, th- I think it was, it might have been Linnell Schneeberg from Connecticut Children's Medical Center in Harvard mm. um, that first uh, threw the idea out, at least on this show, that, that what people need to understand is the average family doctor doesn't spend a whole ton of time in med school on sleep. It's, it's yeah. similar to uh, e- expecting your cardiologist to also have dabbled in psychiatry. It's just yeah. they, there, are, there are all these different areas of medicine. It, I, I was part of a, a survey group once where we were talking to a, a number of uh, general practitioners, family doctors, whatever you want to call them. And one of the things that they came back and said repeatedly was, I, I can't stand it when my patients come to me and ask me um, about losing weight because nutrition was a very tiny part of my med school experience. And so what I can tell them is eat less, exercise more when that might be exactly the wrong thing to tell them. But it's as much as on that topic as we got into because sleep is such a highly specialized thing, right? Yeah. And certainly in the UK, the amount of uh, teaching in the area of sleep is minimal. I think it works out at something like seven minutes overall. And that training that's even that small is really focused on respiratory sleep disorders, so obstructive sleep apnea. So there's not really any avenue for our our general practitioners to go down. They're not given that knowledge so that they can translate it. And so in that instance, their likelihood is, is they're going to rely on pharmacology. And so that's why people get prescribed melatonin when they're at their family doctor. Because, you know, the, the, the typical physician who's not got an interest in sleep, what on earth are they going to be doing? You know, they, they haven't got that many options because they don't know about those options because they haven't been trained in those options. So dumb question from, uh, I mean, you know, as, as a sleep expert, I make a heck of a radio DJ. Um, 
does does something need to change at the level of the educational institution? Because if you've got, I mean, I mean, everybody on the planet sleeps um, the same way that everybody on the planet eats, et cetera. And but and so there is this core of of things that we all do. But if you find out that one in three people globally will at some point in their life have sleep problems, whether it's acute or chronic insomnia, I feel like seven minutes in med school needs to, I mean, who, who do we talk to to at least up that to 10 minutes, if not much longer than that? You know what I'm, you know what I'm driving mm, at? Yeah. How does and, that change? Well, it's interesting. Things are, I hope, uh, changing on this side of the pond because I recently gave a talk to the Royal College of General Practitioners. And as part of the talk, I talked about the need for more education. And the feeling I got back from them is that lifestyle medicine is starting to become quite a big thing. And so talking about diet, talking about exercise, talking about sleep, and talking about substances that we might take which may be harmful or or beneficial for us. So I think things are starting to move. It's going to be a very slow process, though. Man, this is fascinating. I I, I could sit here asking you about CBTI for the next hour and a half, um, (laughs) but I know you've got things to do and places to be. So, I mean, I will – I'll link to – this specific study that I've been harping on and and yeah. everything else that people can uh, you know follow and track as far as the work that you're doing but i'm I'm also interested in finding out what's on your radar right now what are, what's the thing that's right up front and center on your desk mm. although uh, before before we walk away from this uh, you mentioned um, hearing someone's uh, defending their PhD um, oh. I saw I saw that person on Twitter this afternoon thanking you. So I'm assuming it went well. Or <laughs> either that or it went horribly badly and they're just taking the high road. I'm not sure which. <laughs> no, it went it went really well. It was a very thorough PhD. Um, and I have to say, you know, a shout out to the to the young man because it was the best written PhD I've ever examined. Wow. Yeah. Uh, okay. And it made my job a hell of a lot easier. I may have to flag that for him on Twitter and let him know that that quote's coming in this episode. Okay, good. <laughs> in, t- in terms of what's on my radar at the moment. So um, with the, the one shot, the, the single session of CBTI, um, following that paper in 2015, we then uh, looked at whether we can deliver it in groups and whether we lose any of the, the efficacy of it. And then following that, we actually took it into prison because prison is an environment where there's going to be a lot of acute insomnia happening. And we demonstrated on that basis that it works as effectively in prison as it does in the general population. Wow. Where are we going next? We're looking at oncology. And because when people get a diagnosis of cancer, you start to see an upramp in sleep problems, acute insomnia. Because of the stress and the anxiety, these problems then get compounded at the point of intervention, be it chemotherapy or radiotherapy or even gene therapy. And so what we're doing now is we're seeing if we can prophylactically, so when somebody gets a diagnosis of cancer, we're going to give them the intervention then, even if they don't have a sleep problem at that point, and we're going to see if it actually prevents them from developing sleep problems in the future 
And we're also going to look at whether it might even enhance the trajectory of their cancer treatment. That's, that's something that was expressed sort of tangentially in last week's episode as well, where we talked about research that's being done into whether or not improving your sleep also improves your reaction to things like vaccinations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it feels like the more – and this is what I love about the research that's being done into sleep is it all seems to be on a path um, where where there are not often studies that come out that completely contradict other existing studies like there are – like you have in nutrition and – you know, like how many studies have there been on, on caffeine where, yeah. you know, you have one this week that says caffeine does this and then you have one three days later that comes out and says, no, no, that previous study was garbage. <laughs> Here's what caffeine actually and, – and there's no way to keep track where sleep science seems to be just consistently moving mostly in the same direction. But there are so many tendrils that seem to be – on some level related to one another. So you're talking about cancer treatment and other studies talking about vaccination, but it all seems to boil down to this idea that sleep is perhaps, it might be arguably, one of the most important biological processes that there is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I am a bit biased, I have to say, but I would say that sleep is one of the core biological processes for both physical health, mental health, and social well-being as well. Well, and you talked to me about how CBTI deepens sleep. One of the things that started me down this entire road to begin with was the scary studies that were coming out that were linking a lack of N3 sleep to Alzheimer's and, you know, pronounced cognitive decline and things like that. And, And I started looking at that. And, you know, as you and I sit and have this conversation, as soon as we're done, I'm going up to the kitchen to make my two year old's birthday cake because it's her birthday today. Um, She's turning two. I'm about to turn 54. And so I'm looking down the road for her and wanting to participate in some sort of meaningful way in the things in her life. But then if I want to do that, I've got to get this sleep situation addressed or I'm not going to be here for any of it. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things and I, I tend never to deal with the negative aspects of poor sleep um, when I'm talking to a patient because they're anxious enough and they've probably read it themselves. Uh, I tend to talk more about the positive aspects of good sleep. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of those studies, they can be confounded by other things because they're longitudinal. So other things that might have come into somebody's life or gone out of somebody's life may have influenced those results. So I'm always a bit careful about, you know, no sleep equals death. I think, <laughs> yes. sort of, I think, you know, I have patients and they'll come to me and that's, they're already, that's already in their mind. Well, there's a book that basically says that too. Um, and <laughs> yes, there is. We don't need to get into specifics on that, but I mean, no. 99% of the people know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. And so that's why I, I really don't like to focus on that side of things. Um, and that's why I suppose in my way I'm dealing with the prevention side of things because I, I'm thinking, okay, let's make sure people don't get it in the first place. 
That's that's brilliant. Um, the other thing I'm going to make sure that we link to in the show notes for this episode is a, a link to the one week insomnia <laughs> cure. Um, which again, uh, you'll note if you're a, uh, if you follow us on Instagram, has virtually identical cover graphics to what we've been using. <laughs> we stole it from from Jay, is what we did. Um, but you'll you'll see some similarities there, which are kind of fun. I can't thank you enough for this and. Good. You know, a lot of people have, um, Michael Grandner included, and a number of other folk that have come on the show to talk about sleep, have been talking about CBTI, and it is obviously something that needs to go into the list of things that I try, except uh, I'll, I'll tell you right out of the gate, I... I don't want to put it at the top of the list because I have a sense that it's going to work. And as much as that sounds <laughs> counterintuitive, I want to try and explore some of the other options for people too so mm -hmm. that, you know, okay, so let's try weighted blankets. Let's try lavender pillows. Let's try all these different <laughs> things. And I'm assuming that the trajectory of all of this is going to be that I get to the end and save CBTI for the end because that's the wonderful climactic scene at the end of the film where I figure out exactly how to defeat the big bad. And so mm. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you more about this and I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe you and I can get back together for a few minutes when it's actually time for me to dive into CBTI because it sounds like you're exactly the person to lead me through this. I, I would be absolutely delighted. I would say one other thing. Um, about 30% of people don't respond to CBTI. And so oh. one of the things that we've got to do is start to look at alternatives. Um, and a, a paper I actually published this year is looking at a very new and very off-the-wall alternative, um, which is teaching people to lucid dream. Fascinating. We just mm. and 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 you're you're going to hear me say this phrase for the umpteenth time. We just did an episode on lucid dreaming about three months ago with Dr. Celine Bastien, uh, from, who's the president of the Canadian Sleep Society. My academic wife. Really? Oh yeah. Um, and she was <laughs> she she seemed to espouse the idea that it's it's kind of easy to teach yourself how to control your dreams. Yep. And that's and, and actually the paper is Celine, myself, and Joseph de Conique. And that's what we did. We taught people how to lucid dream. They had insomnia. We taught them how to lucid dream, and it took a lot less time than a full CBTI. And the results actually are really quite promising. Oh wow. Okay. Okay. We have, well, we have so many other things to talk about. Okay. This is, this is fine. I'm, I'm glad we uh, at least electronically met today, Jay. Uh, I, and I appreciate you making time for this. Um, and, and I'm hopeful that we'll be able to connect again sometime very soon. Thank you so much for this. Thank you. I'd love to. It's been an absolute pleasure. There you go, Dr. Jason Ellis on the snooze button. Uh, I'm going to put links to the study that we talked about. I'm going to put a link to his book on Amazon, which is uh, a must-buy. Uh, we may even wrangle a few copies of it from uh, Jay to give away. 
at a future date. But for now, I'll put the link there in case you can't wait and you just want to get to Amazon and get the process started. So we'll put all that there. And uh, I will see you back here for another episode of the Snooze Button Podcast next week. If you want show notes, if you want all that information, it's all on our website at thesnoozebutton.com. Easy ways to rate and review the show. You can subscribe. You can get information about the short version called the Snooze Button Express if you dig the content, but you just don't have 45 or 50 minutes to invest in a show. This is the nine-minute sort of highlight package. We're a little behind on the production, but we're getting there. And so that's waiting for you there, too. All of it at thesnoozebutton.com. Till we get together next week, my name's Neil. Hey, get some sleep, would you? Hey.